Welcome to the AANEM podcast series, a monthly discourse on recent publications in neuromuscular and electrodiagnostic literature, featuring interviews with the authors and other experts, brought to you by the American Association of Neuromuscular and Electrodiagnostic Medicine. The AANEM welcomes your comments, suggestions, and questions. Email them to aanem at aanem.org. This is Dr. Justin Willer. We're doing a podcast today. Welcome, Dr. James Harris. We're looking at the article, COVID-19 Associated Guillain-Barre Syndrome, the Early Pandemic Experience. Dr. Harris is from the Department of Neurology in Wake Forest University School of Medicine from North Carolina. And I would like to welcome Dr. Harris today. Thank you. Look forward to doing this. What was the time of development of GBS from the onset of the COVID infection? And how does this compare to non-COVID related GBS? Is it the same or are there any differences? Well, the mean time uh, from the beginning of COVID symptoms to the beginning of the neurological illness was about 11 days, which is, is you know, broadly typical of, uh, of the delay in, in other diseases. Um, such as Campylobacter and things like that. Um, was there any difference in terms of the breakdown of GBS subtypes? Was it pretty much the same for all subtypes? Yeah, again, there's, you know, overall, what we found was a lot of similarity between garden variety GBS, I suppose, uh, with uh, 50 to 60% meeting criteria for AIDP and then smaller percentages in the other ones. So no, nothing really stood out uh, there. You know, it's important to recognize that this study is a collection of case reports. So they're going to be subject to all the bias that you normally see with case reported data. Uh, you know, what gets published is not necessarily garden variety. So, you know, that needs to be understood this is not a population-based study. This was not a cohort study at our center. It's what had been published. And uh, I think the biggest value is this was sort of the first really large series that got out there and got into print. We stopped data collection in June and it was available online in July. Now, what was the age and sex distribution of the COVID patients with GBS? The mean age was uh, 58, and you know this probably reflects the nature of uh, who was getting COVID at the time. 65% of the cases were male. What was the breakdown in terms of the subtypes of GBS? How many were... AIDP versus acute uh, motor exonal or acute motor sensory exonal, Miller-Fisher, et cetera? Around two thirds were AIDP. And what, what we did to make this determination was uh, we looked at what each author had reported, what neurophysiologic data was available, and then applied something called the Haddon criteria, which is a sort of a uniform way of determining is this demyelinating, is it exonal, or is it equivocal? And, and put those, use that criteria to create some uniformity across the data. 
and at the end of that, we were able to say that three quarters of the cases um, were reported as AIDP and using Haddon criteria, it was about 50%. Uh, the AMSAN was the next most common at around 10 or 15%. There was another 10 or 15% of Miller-Fisher variant and only a small percentage, about one of the cases that we uh, looked at had the, the AMAN or acute motor axonal neuropathy pattern. Do you have any idea why the AMAN was so infrequent or is this just simply a sampling problem? I think this is really interesting. Most of the cases we looked at were from Western countries, uh, Europe and the United States, um, although many, many countries are in this group. But overall, we were not seeing too many cases from South America and, and uh, Asia, where there tends to be more of the AMAN variety, there tends to be more Campylobacter in those countries because the level of sanitation is, is different. But another thing that's just absolutely fascinating, uh, Justin, is that in other uh, papers that have been published since, there is evidence that the rate of Guillain-Barre as a whole is actually going down during this period. And this has been attributed to the fact that we are not interacting as frequently, if you've not noticed, and we wear masks when we do it. So we're not passing as many viruses and we're washing our hands more. So we're probably getting less Campylobacter. So, you know, even though there it's possible, there may be a small spike of Guillain-Barre that's related to COVID and that, that's a very controversial. Our paper does not touch on that. And I can refer you to two other papers that discuss it in more detail. Um, and I'll, I'll say that on the balance of the evidence, it looks like there is not a relationship between COVID and GBS at this point. Uh, does your comment about a man and improved, you know, hand washing, does that suggest that we should be attacking at least some of these GBS subtypes in terms of more aggressive um, hand washing, et cetera, in order to try to prevent Dayman? You know, would that sound something like something that would be reasonable? Absolutely. I mean, uh, Campylobacter is, you know, it's, a, it's obviously associated with diarrhea and that, that's, it's, uh, it, you know, when there's more contamination of the environment, uh, the, the Campylobacter rates are going to be higher. It would be interesting to see what how it would happen if there was a trial of hand washing um, in endemic areas for Campylobacter and looking at what the rate of Amman after that would be, because that might be a relatively easy and cheap way to prevent it. Yeah, certainly for that variance, reduced incidence. But it, you know, this uh, there was a reduced incidence of GBS in England, and uh, they were able to to show that the number of cases of GBS that were associated with diarrhea were much less frequent than a reasonable sort of comparison cohort that they looked at. So even within a you know third uh, first world Western country, you can still see this difference, even though hand washing was probably pretty prevalent before uh, COVID, but you know it's now really amped up. 
Um, do you also think any of the decreased incidents can be from, uh, you know, decreased rates of influenza, which we haven't really been seeing as much as previously because of the de decreased interactions, masks, etc.? No doubt. Um, now, uh, I wanted to move on to the imaging studies. Um, can you discuss the imaging studies that uh, in your in the in the cohort you reviewed? Sure, it's a pretty small segment where we could get um, imaging data. So we looked at 37 cases, but only about half the cases had relevant imaging. MRI of the spine was normal in, uh, but we looked at 15 cases total MRI of the spine and 60% of those were normal only Two of 15 cases showed lumbar root enhancement or something called plexitis or radiculitis, maybe not well-defined in the paper that we looked at. Only one case of the 15 showed leptomeningeal enhancement. I'll, I'll mention a couple of things about MRI of the brain. They were usually normal. Uh, these were looking at 14 cases of our cohort Facial nerve enhancement was seen in two cases. These are presumably the Miller-Fisher cases. Cranial neuritis was seen in one case. My comment on that would be that this doesn't look particularly different or interesting than other cases of GBS to me. Um, what about the CSF and ancillary findings in Guillain-Barre syndrome? Very typical. There was cytoalbuminologic dissociation in three quarters of the cases, and about 20% of the cases had normal CSF. One other thing I found interesting was that 18 of the cases had PCR run for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and all of them were negative. Uh, does that imply to you that the virus is not directly responsible and all of this is an autoimmune response causing the GBS? That's a great question. Difficult to answer. Um, I, it's certainly possible it may be below the level of detection. And even if you found virus, you wouldn't necessarily know that it's causing the illness. Overall, there seems to be relatively little evidence that this virus is particularly neurotropic in the way that it acts. Um, have you seen any encephalitis or brainstem involvement in any of the COVID cases? Um, the reason I ask is I had one patient who had clearly diagnosed COVID that developed the inability to see laterally on either side but no diplopia, which kind of suggested to me a very focal brainstem encephalitis. Have you seen anything similar? I personally have not seen any kind of brainstem encephalitis that was attributed to COVID. There is one paper out there that had cases of a sort of a bulbard palsy type presentation. Mm -hmm that was associated with COVID, but these patients had been intubated for long periods of time and had symptoms that could be explained by prolonged intubation or 
trauma from the tube. Was there any difference in terms of response to treatment or basically the protocols for treatment of COVID-related GBS as opposed to non-COVID-related GBS? Generally, these patients were treated similar to what would be typically used for GBS. So almost 90% were treated with IVIG at the standard dosing. Three underwent plasma exchange. I think there were one or two patients that just were not treated. It's also important to recognize these patients were treated with a lot of things for their COVID. <laughs> uh, they were treated with, a lot of them were getting hydroxychloroquine. Um, they were getting uh, azithromycin, lopinavir, and ritonavir. Well, I would presume, and I don't want to be flippant about these treatments for COVID and GPS, but I would tend to assume along the line, since they didn't really do much for COVID, they probably didn't do much for the patient's GBS, but obviously we need large series to be certain of that. And I don't want to be too flippant and dismissing it out of hand, but I would suspect it didn't really have that much of an effect on their outcome. I would agree with that. In these cases, did you, you know, what was the percentage of patients with COVID related GBS that needed mechanical ventilation um, as opposed to the non-COVID or, um, you know, basically how many of these patients kind of hit that na really bad nadir that we some uh, see some of the time with GBS? In this group of patients, mechanical ventilation rate was fairly high. Typically it's around 25% to 30% in non-COVID related GBS. And in this group, it was higher. It was almost 40%. A lot of that probably has to do with most of these patients had COVID pneumonia and were very sick medically as opposed to most of the GBS patients that we see that have basically a neurological illness but don't have a concomitant pulmonary illness on top of that. One of the patients in this group died within 24 hours of admission due to respiratory failure, but it's unknown how much of their respiratory failure could be ascribed to their COVID versus their GBS. Well, uh, I would kind of agree with that. And I would kind of tend to think it was more the COVID um, given that there doesn't seem to be other major differences between COVID-related GBS and non-COVID-related GBS. Uh, but obviously, we need more experience with this before you can really answer that question. Yeah, I think I would encourage listeners to also look at the more recent article in Brain that maybe we can add somehow to this podcast so that it's a link to it or something is available that looks at, looks at GBS cases that have COVID and non-COVID in the UK during the first wave of the illness, a really nice study, and really shows no differences between the two groups that are important. There was not a significant difference in the severity of the GBS between the two groups. 
Uh, now that brings us to our last question. Uh, what are your thoughts on the need for long-term perspective studies to assess the long-term acts uh, outcomes of COVID-related GBS? Yes, when the smoke of war clears, things should be much more <laughs> obvious in terms of what's a real relationship versus a, a mere association. Certainly there'll be a need for better epidemiology going forward. In this case, particularly in the United States, we were very much hampered by the fact that testing was so limited. We, we couldn't simply test everybody in the way that you would like to do this kind of research. I certainly encourage people to look at the, the paper in Brain that does a nice job of exactly that. It's over a fairly short period of time. So I think when this kind of research looking at very broad population-based databases will look at GBS cases associated with and without COVID, we should be able to clarify this better than it is now. I think now it's controversial still whether COVID increases GPS or not. There was a study out of Northern Italy that showed a slight increase in the risk for GBS. Then the, the much larger paper out of the UK did not show that difference. So we'll certainly know more once we get maybe a year's worth of data together. Well, perhaps we can do a part two to this podcast somewhere down the line. I'd like to thank Dr. Karras uh, for his participation. The neurophysiology of COVID is still being defined. And I think we're going to see a lot more neurologic outcomes in terms of central involvement, neuropsychiatric, you know, neuromuscular complications of COVID. And I look forward to seeing further papers from Dr. Karras and as we define the exact parameters of COVID-related effects going forward from here to the future. Thanks. I enjoyed doing it.